Well, we are week three into a series called The Big Objections, which is shamelessly stolen, uh, plagiarized of a wonderful church in Eastbourne, run by some good friends of mine, and they're very flattered that we're even uh, wanting to piggyback their fantastic their series that they did. And, and basically, it's, it's looking at eight juicy, fantastic objections that often people have when they think about the Christian faith. I was an atheist for most of my life, up to the age of 20, and certainly I resonate with most of these objections. They, they, are, you know, they, they, they bring back many memories, as it were, when I, when I think about them. When I'm in the pub, which I'm increasingly at a lot, um, which is brilliant, um, these are the ones that come back, uh, and I know you probably know that. And if you're here, perhaps, because of this series, and uh, you don't normally come to church, but you, you, you're interested in, in, in how Christians respond to these kind of big objections, you are so incredibly welcome here. And it's, it's fantastic to actually see, after years and years and years of, as an eldership, preaching on a church which loves those who don't know Christ, and praying for the church to become a people who more and more love those who don't know Christ. It is fantastic to see more and more across all the sites, fires starting to burn, as people realize, actually, it doesn't have to be this scary thing. The gospel is good news. It really, really is. And actually, we don't have to be ashamed of it. In fact, we mustn't be ashamed of it. And all around where we live, God has preordained men and women of peace who are hungry and excited. I got a text just this, just this week from a, a friend in one of the sites saying, just to encourage you, Tom, the, the preach that you've recently done, I've already sent that to several of my unbelieving friends just this week because this exact topic, although they couldn't make it on the Sunday, they're really, really interested in. And, and then she said, and my husband has now started his own equivalent of the Tonford Lane Beers Club, which I think I've mentioned to you many times. And he's now started it in his area of Canterbury. And that whole sort of part of where he's living is going to be uh, connected as men regularly get together and yes have a beer and yes become friends but also have a context where they, they can actually talk about the big issues of life. So God is doing something and I want you to catch the heart of that. I don't want your life to be so busy that you just see it happening elsewhere and you miss out on the fact that God is calling us. Even if you feel very very weak. Does anyone here feel very very weak? Yeah, and very, very busy, perhaps, as well. And also very rubbish at explaining anything, really, about the gospel. Most of our hands will be up the whole time. But it, the amazing thing is, it's always been that way. <laughs> when you read this book, it's, there's no, like, shiny churches. They're just not there. They don't exist. They're all broken. They're all a bit weak and a bit rubbish, in a way. That's why we're called a jar of clay. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Say to the person next to you, say, you, brother, sister, are a jar of clay. You are a jar. That's what the Bible says. But in that jar, what? What, what exists? Say it nice and loud. Treasure. Treasure in a jar of clay. And that's what this whole thing is about. So if you're here and you're new, don't look with the eyes, with your physical eyes. This is about seeing with the eyes of faith, seeing the gospel at work in very normal, broken people. That's where the glory is. It's not on the outside, it's on the inside. So today, anyway, we come to our third juicy objection, which um, really is a summary of the kind of things that probably you may have said before you became a Christian. I know I certainly did. The sorts of things that our workmates might say to us um, when they know you're a Christian. They'll say things like, oh, being a, you know, Christianity, isn't that really just a bit of a crutch? Christianity is, is something for weak people uh, who are needy, and it's just something for them to kind of lean on. 
Or, or they may say something similar to like, well, surely, actually, we can, we can just believe whatever we want to believe. There's no actual evidence that God exists. So surely we can just believe what we want. Or the kind of thing of, I've often even found myself saying many years ago, but I often hear other people say, which is similar, which is, it's just somewhat irrational to actually believe in this God who, and a God who went and died on a cross in, in the Middle East. It's just bizarre. It's just weird. It's like, I don't know, believing in the tooth fairy or something. So we have kind of clustered those kind of objections together in the following title. Why believe in a God when there's no actual evidence that he exists? Why believe in a God, oh Christian, when there's no actual evidence that he exists? Surely what you believe is like believing in Harry Potter. It's not real. There's no, how can any thinking person genuinely believe in a gospel about a, a man a carpenter who was also God. You get the idea. This is what we're looking at today. And we're just going to look at three different steps. First of all, we're going to look at five reasons for the evidence of God. And when we talk about evidence, we're not talking about a kind of test tube physical thing. We're talking about logical evidence, reasons in logic itself why it's not unreasonable to believe in uh, Christianity. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that actually we're going to watch a video. Yeah, we're going to watch a few minute video of a friend of mine, Andrew, who is bit of a genius and I was watching this thinking if I attempt to try and do what he's done in this first point it will be very embarrassing so we're actually going to watch him do it and be equipped as he is brilliant when it comes to equipping us in terms of these kind of things five logic-based reasons why it is absolutely logically reasonable to believe in the Christian faith Number two, then I'm going to take over again, uh, live, Tommy. We're then going to have our second point, which is to look at actually the point that the evidence alone isn't actually enough. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the point of why it is, therefore, we don't desire evidence for God and what the Bible says about that. So let me pray, and then we'll dive straight in. Lord, we want to be equipped. We want to be a people who are equipped so that when, when we are out of this room... Lord God, and in your place here in Whitstable, we want to be those who actually know how to help people towards the faith. We thank you that it's ultimately completely your work, but that you do call us to, as it says in 2 Corinthians, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We want to fear you and therefore persuade others. I pray for a heart of desire in this sight to persuade others. I pray against just almost life slipping past us and just thinking this is not something that I can do. I pray for the oldest to the very youngest in here. We pray, Lord Jesus, in the next few moments you will equip us to be confident that actually you are real and you want many people to know that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, sit back. Let's watch a little video for a few minutes. Andrew Wilson brilliantly explaining five reasons for the evidence of God. First one, the argument from design. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, i.e. the universe has to be there because of what it is, or chance, luck, or design. Right? Premise one. Premise two, if the universe is designed, then its designer is God. That, that shouldn't be that controversial, really. If the whole, uh, the whole order of everything physical is designed, it must be designed by a non-physical, immaterial power. And that's what Christians believe God is. So you can't prove it's the God of the Bible, but you could prove that there was a God, if that was true. 
Thirdly, the fine-tuning of the universe isn't due to physical necessity or chance. In other words, the universe doesn't have to be there. There was a long time ago, it wasn't. According to most, what most scientists are telling us, there was, used not to be a universe, now there is. So the universe is not physically necessary. It might have been there, it might not. And similarly, there's a lot of good reasons to think that the universe is not here by chance, which is something that we looked at in a bit more detail in the very first week of this series, uh, looking at the issue of science and faith. And actually, there's a lot of things about the cosmos as it is now that indicate strongly that it is not simply a result of chance events. Now, obviously, that takes a bit more demonstration, which we don't have time for here, but we did, as I say, a talk on that a few weeks back. But if that was the case, then the fine-tuning, step four, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to design. If it's got to be due to physical necessity, chance, or design, and it's not due to necessity, and it's not due to design, chance, it must be due to design. That's step four. Therefore, the designer of the universe, from steps two and four, is God. That's a fairly straightforward argument for the existence of God based on design. The challenges usually come around step three, and that's where we spent a decent amount of time earlier on in the series looking at that one. But hold, if three holds up, that's a watertight argument. Second argument for the existence of God out of the five, the argument for morality. This one's simpler. If God doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. There is no basis for objective morality if there is no God. There might be all sorts of bases for saying, I don't like that. I find war unpleasant. I don't like being bombed. I don't like torture happening or genocide. But I can't say that they're wrong or evil. I can simply say that I prefer not to have them. There's no moral basis without God because there's no lawgiver, right? There's no moral law if there's no lawgiver. So if you don't have a God, there is no basis to say that's just wrong. There's a basis to say I don't like it, but not a basis to say it's evil or wrong. Step two Objective moral values and duties do exist, though. They do. And most people in this country instinctively feel that's true as well, which is good. It's it's true. Objective, there is such a thing as a right and a wrong. It's not just that in the 1930s, being a Jew in Nazi Germany, I don't just have to resign myself to the fact, well, I'm in a minority here. I mean, I know there's a few million of us, but there's many more millions of them, and they generally think that we're worth persecuting, so that's what, I'll just have to lump it. It's not my preference. And you and I would say, no, no, no. You're allowed to say it's evil. It is wrong. It's, it's wrong. It's sick. It's evil. It's twisted. That's absolutely, objectively wrong. It's not just a matter of the strong killing the weak, which happens everywhere in nature. This is a different order of things. This is evil. Objective moral values and duties do exist. But if those two are both true, step three logically must follow. Therefore, God exists. If God doesn't exist, there is no objective morality. But there is objective morality. Therefore, God must exist. Right? It's quite a straightforward, logical argument there. Number three, the cosmological argument. You throw in an illogical and everybody feels like they're getting their money's worth, which I hope will help. Step one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Right? That's a statement about the nature of reality. Everything that there is either has to be there because of what it is or it's been caused by something else. Step two, if the universe has an explanation for its existence, that explanation is God. If there is an explanation for the universe, there might not be, but if there is, the only thing we could really call that would be God because the universe is the sum total of physical reality and for that to be caused by something else, it must be caused then by an immaterial reality. Otherwise, it would be simply part of the universe. Therefore, if the universe is caused, it's caused by God. Set three, less controversial, the universe exists. Trust most of us probably believe that. 
4. Therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence from 1 and 3. Therefore, from 2 and 4, the explanation of the universe's existence is God. Now, logically, that all ties up, right? You might question or debate one or two of the premises, which is okay, but the logic of the argument flows. So if the premises are true, the conclusion is true. You enjoying this so far? So three down, two to go. The next one is a bit more out the box. The argument from you. If materialism is not true, then God exists. Right? Materialism is the, is the belief that the only thing that there is is matter, physical stuff. There is no spiritual dimension to the, anything. There is simply matter and physical stuff. If materialism isn't true, then there must be a God. Because there must be a source of immaterial reality as well as material reality. If materialism isn't true, God exists. Step two, if anything fundamentally immaterial exists, then materialism isn't true. Which means if I could find just one thing anywhere, anywhere in the universe, one thing that wasn't fundamentally and essentially matter, even just one item, materialism is hogwash. Can't be right. Because materialism says everything's matter. If I find one thing that isn't reducible to matter, I've debunked it and kind of proved God. Step three, you exist. And you go, well, that's not very clever, Mr. Preacher. You point your finger and say it significantly, but that hasn't convinced me of anything. Well, step four, you cannot finally be identified with anything in your physical body. And here is the, here's the claim. You go out and commit a crime today. In 30 years' time, the entity that you now are will have none of the same atoms. Every single atom that currently comprises the you that's sitting here listening to this will have gone and become part of something else, part of the water supply, or drifted down into the sea, or be part of the hills, or been eaten by a dog. I don't know where it'll be, but it won't be part of you. All the atoms will have gone. And all of the atoms that will comprise you in 30 years' time are now somewhere else. Part of the sea, eaten by a dog, goodness knows. It's not a strange idea, but that's true, right? The nitrogen and oxygen and components of you in 30 years' time are currently part of dogs and grass and trees and water. Now, some of you are weirded out by this idea, but it's true. You will replace yourself somewhere every, between every 7 to 10 years. In other words, if I was to put you on trial in 30 years' time for a crime you committed today, you could legitimately say, but none of the atoms are the same. I, I didn't do it. Another bunch of atoms did it. And you'd be right. And at that point, I suspect the judge would say, do you know what? The fact that the atoms are not the same as the atoms that committed the crime does not mean that you are exempt because we believe in this legal system that you are still accountable for things you did even though the atoms that form you are totally different. At which point, I win. Because I say, in that case, you cannot be reducible simply to the material parts of your body. You must believe that there is something that comprises you that is not reducible to atoms. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to say that. And I could play the... Every time, if I get away with a crime for 10 years, I can say, I'm done. Different atoms, not me. The, the last one's left my big toe. I'm done. Double jeopardy. And you wouldn't let me get away with that because you say, but you actually is something that isn't simply matter. Therefore, number five, something fundamentally immaterial exists. You. Therefore, materialism isn't true from two and five. Therefore, God exists from one and six. Boom. It's good fun, isn't it? Okay? Number five, the argument from love, freedom, and thought, which is similar. If the last one annoyed you, this one will too. If you like the last one, this one will be nice too. Number one, if materialism's true, all our loves, thoughts, and actions are determined by the unthinking, non-rational movement of chemicals in our skulls. 
Every single thing you've ever done is non-thinking. It's not thinking. It's not cognitive. It feels like it is, but it isn't. It's just a result of collisions of chemicals, if materialism is true. Number two, therefore, if materialism is true, we have no freedom of love, thought, and action. This is the case that I ended up randomly debating on the radio with a guy from the Council for the National Secular Society who was making exactly this case. There is no such thing as freedom. It's a complete illusion. You do not make any free decisions. They are all programmed results of chemical collisions in your head and you have no control over any of them. It just feels like you do. Step three, but we do experience freedom of love, thought, and action. We know that no matter what the secular society band says or what the philosophers say, that I do actually experience freedom to choose Weetabix or cornflakes. And I do have decisions about who I'm going to marry and about whether or not I'm going to kill somebody. And all sorts of everyday decisions, that's horrible. It makes it sound like I decide whether or not to kill people every day. Scrub that from the edit online, I didn't mean it. But anyway, all sorts of everyday decisions. You and I make decisions and we do actually experience freedom in the act. But if that's true then immaterial realities exist and materialism is false. And if that's true, immaterial realities like love, freedom and thought require an immaterial gift giver that we may call God. If it, it, cannot be, it can't be that matter has produced immaterial realities somehow. Instead, we have to say, don't we, look, material realities can produce other material ones, but if there's an immaterial reality, it must have been created by an immaterial creator which is what God is, therefore, number six, God exists. Now, those are not the only five. They're just the five I chose. There's another 15 or so good ones you could use. Wow. You can see why I didn't attempt to do that. That's about the fourth time I've watched it, and I've just about got it. Some of you will immediately drink that in and go, yes, of course, and that's because you're hardwired that way. I, I'm not particularly. I kind of very slow process, so I just about get it. But actually what he's saying is incredibly helpful because, logically speaking, he's right. Those are a set of different prepositions which follow each other and actually therefore logically demonstrate that there is evidence, as it were, that God exists, uh, which is nothing to do, as it were, with your own um, presuppositions apart from the fact of the logic itself demonstrating that. However, what he goes on to say, and which I'll now say, is this. Secondarily, although that is true, evidence itself is not enough normally to actually persuade us. Evidence alone, although those things are very, very helpful and clever and are certainly worth, you know, as best you can, memorizing, actually evidence alone is not enough to persuade us because I think we tend to view ourselves as humans as sort of um, logical, dispassionate people who deduce things and make choices over things based mainly on reason and logic. We like to view ourselves as people who do that, that we're fairly objective and that as humans we look at the evidence, we weigh it and therefore we make decisions. That's how most people around us would view themselves. But actually, we are not people who only make decisions based on our deductions, actually our desires for something to either be true or not true, are a hugely powerful other ingredient when we think about why it is that we either do believe something or we don't believe something. Our desires form a huge part of what we believe and why we believe, as well as the logical 
mental deductions. Does that make sense? So our hearts, as it were, our emotions are hugely unconscious, but very real part, almost like an iceberg under the surface. And we think we're all about that tip, all about the brain. Yeah, we make these decisions, like, I'm very logical. But actually, humans are not like that at all. And in simple terms, if we do not desire something to be true, we will generally need or request a larger amount of evidence than if we don't want something to be true. So if we don't want something to be true, we generally want a larger amount of evidence than if we're happy for something to be true. So let me give you a few, a few illustrations. If you watch a game of football, as I often do, and, uh, and there's, um, there's a d- that one team wins because of a, a penalty that was awarded, when you interview see the interviewer of the two managers and their opinion of the, of the fairness of that penalty. You see this point brilliantly played out because invariably the manager of the team that won because of the penalty will have no problems at all believing. They just need a tiny bit of evidence to believe that it was a fair decision for that penalty, which meant that they won, to be awarded. Whereas if you see the interview for the other manager for whom that was the decisive reason they didn't win, he will almost invariably feel that it was totally unjust and will in effect be needing vast amounts of evidence to actually convince him that it is true. Their decisions, those two managers, on whether that thing is true or not is not just because of a cold, logical deduction that goes on in their brain. Unconsciously, their desires for that thing to either be true or not true are massively informing how much evidence that they require. And it's the same for us. So, for example, you talk to two mums. Their girls have been involved in a fight in the playground. Normally, it would, uh, uh, normally for, for most mums, they would require a huge amount of evidence to believe that it was their daughter that actually just started that fight and, and was the main person involved with it. Maybe some of you would say, not if you knew my daughter. But for most, most mums... If, you know, they would go, I can't believe that. Why? Because actually there's a huge desire in us that it isn't true. And that massively informs, therefore, how much evidence that we want. So if you're a Christian here today, it's very likely that you would need a massive amount of evidence, of compelling, vast evidence, to come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. Because you desperately want it to be true that he does exist. Or perhaps you're here and you're, you wouldn't say you're a Christian. You're maybe an unbeliever. And actually for you... It's very likely that you would need a huge amount of evidence, actually far greater than someone else, to believe that it is true. So what we're trying to say is here, and I think this is very powerful, logic, evidence, really helpful. But actually, humans do not make their decisions purely on logic. In fact, I wouldn't even say mainly on logic or mental, cold, objective decisions. Actually, informing how much evidence we need to make a yes or a no, behind that is this huge issue of desire, whether we want something to be true or not. So for me, as I said at the beginning, uh, 20 years as an atheist, and when I started to come to this church, and I had this strange sensation that maybe God was real and I'd been wrong, every fiber of my being did not want it to be true. I'll be really honest with you. My observations of Christians in the past had not been good. My observations of of whether you know Christianity in my head was the un of all the religions, please not Christianity. God, if you're there, surely not anything else. You know, I was more kind of vaguely interested in Buddhism. At least that kind of seemed a bit cool. You know, a bit more kind of open about what you do. And but this idea of a very moral God, 
This Christian God was like, oh no, this, this is the one thing I so don't want to be true because it's so uncool. The idea of even saying to my friends, I'm a Christian, was almost just made me faint with fear. It was just, and if you've been a Christian a long time, you probably can't even remember what that's like. Or perhaps your story was that you became a Christian when you were really young and you don't even know what that's like. When you're a 20-year-old person at university and you've, you've been an active atheist and all your friends are atheists, or it, I mean, my, my older brother, who is my biggest hero, he's one of the most genius guys. He's a, he's a, a lecturer at an, an Ivy League uh, university in America. He's a genius, and he's really not a Christian. The idea of telling Martin almost made me faint with fear. And, and it was just like, not Christianity. It's been, it's been associated with so much rubbish in the past. I, I, could, I couldn't find anything positive about it. That's just honestly true in terms of where I was at. And this is the reason, therefore, I needed like a room full of evidence to actually crush or to push down the huge desire in me for this not to be true. And it's, it's still the case in terms of, not now, I mean, I love Christians, but you know what I'm saying. Actually, we, we process things. We don't just process things in terms of cold evidence. It's true in our whole of our life. If we don't want something to, to be true, we will look for massive amounts of evidence, way more than someone who actually um, is very happy for something to be true. And this is fascinating. If you actually look uh, at many of the well-known atheists of our time, Many of them have actually admitted this, that the reason they don't believe in God is not actually just because logically they don't think it makes sense, but because they don't want to believe. So, for example, very famous Richard Dawkins, I think we'll have this quote up here. He says in a debate with a Christian guy, John Lennox, he said, you could, this is fascinating, he said, you could persuade me that there was a God, a kind of vague God, who created everything. But that is incompatible with a God who cares about your sin and what you do with your genitals and what you think about. I.e., he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, potentially, for you to persuade me that there's some kind of higher force. But, but, but I am not, I'm not open to being persuaded that there is a moral God who actually cares what I do with my life. Because sex is my God and I'm not going to allow any other God to try and interfere with that. It's too strong. He's saying, actually, that is my desire and therefore I'm not going to open myself to that. Another... Uh, American uh, atheist called Richard Lewontin, he said this, our materialism is absolute because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Similar kind of point. Next one, though, is really, really clear. Thomas Nagel in 97, he says this, I want atheism to be true. This is a very well-known atheist. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Incredibly honest. Do you see, they're all saying the same thing. Actually, that fundamentally, and Oscar Wilde would be another example, fundamentally, I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be true, and that desire therefore massively shapes my logical deductions. Now, this is not to say that evidence alone is never enough. Because otherwise, you think, oh, this is very depressing. You're saying no matter how much evidence, <laughs> if someone doesn't want it to be true, you're saying they can't believe. Well, of course, that's not the case. So you do get examples. C.S. Lewis would be a very famous one, uh, who after 10 years of debating in a pub with, um, with Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, who was a Christian, uh, is this true? After 10 years of debating, 
actually, and in that time, C.S. Lewis did three degrees and got first for all of them from Oxford. He was a pretty sharp guy. There was no debating about this. He said, in the end, he said, I, I became a Christian, and he said, I was the most reluctant convert in the whole of Christendom. It's like it just ground him down. He couldn't logically, ultimately um, disagree with it. And you do get football managers, don't you, occasionally, who just because of the sheer weight of evidence, they go, okay, I have to concede that this is true. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that for most people, is that our desires, your desires, our friends' desires are a huge part of what's going on when they think about God, the reality of God. And so actually, therefore, if they don't know that, they will be potentially... Um, not aware of the reality of, of how it is as to how they come to those decisions. Evidence is a huge part of it, but if you don't want something to be true, you're far more likely to have this never-ending list of more evidence, please, for anything in life that grows and grows and grows. It's not just uh, the entrance to the, f- to the faith, it's throughout the whole of our life. It's a very important point. So finally then, what do we actually do? And I think we have to ask the final question, which is, well, why therefore... Why do people, and why perhaps do you, if you're here as an unbeliever, why do people not desire evidence for God? Because what I want to guess to say is this. It's not just that I'm trying to say that this is true, that there is a lack of desire in people. It's not just that it's true. It's actually very weird, logically speaking. It's actually very strange. Because if you think about it, I remember this dawning on me as I was looking into the faith, If the Christian God, let's really simplify it, if the Christian God ultimately is a God who's unbelievably powerful and unbelievably loving, that's a pretty amazing God, right? That's a pretty amazing person to know. Why would anyone not want to have evidence for that kind of person to exist who wants to have a relationship with you? So a question I often find myself saying in the pub with the lads uh, is, is this. Listen, if there was a God who, who made everything, he made Venus and Jupiter and every Milky Way and everything, he literally just made it, boom, like that, and he sustains it like that. And he, may, he, he sustains every atom, every molecule of your body, everything. Everything he just sustains. He's that powerful. But he's also more yearning to have a loving relationship with you than even your wife. He cares more about you than even your children. He, he loves you with an unbelievable love and he wants to just shower you with grace and love. If that God, if there's a 1% chance that that God is, is real, who's that powerful and that loving, why wouldn't you want to have at least an investigation as to whether that's true? Even if there's just a 1% chance that that's real. At which point they always go, oh yeah, I suppose you've got a point. And actually, the fact that humans don't desire God is very, very, it's not just true, it's very, very strange. Because if I was to say to you, there's another human who's incredibly powerful and incredibly loving, a really impressive, successful person in human terms who's really, really loving, and he really wants to meet you, he really wants to become friends with you. I don't know who in your mind vaguely fits that picture. I kind of thought something like Richard Branson or something. You know, he's kind of a really nice guy, isn't he? He's what he seems anyway. Um, and he's really impressive, and he's mega, you know, pa- in a worldly sense, incredibly powerful. And he just said, you know what, Janine, I really want to, I just, I just, I've always wanted to get to know you. 
it would, you'd be a bit scared probably, but, <laughs> but you'd be fascinated. You'd be like, wow, that's really amazing, actually. I'd, okay, I'm kind of flattered. I'd, where does he want to meet? You know, down the docks. You know, whatever. He, th- th- there would be a human desire in us who's someone who is that impressive and that loving to actually have a relationship with that person. So the fact that humans don't have a relationship, they don't have, let me put it in this word, they don't have an appetite for it, and I use that word deliberately, is, is not just true. I, I really want you to let this sink in. It's very, very strange. It's actually very strange why a human would not want to have a relationship with a God who's all-loving and all-powerful. And actually, when we think about it that way, it helps us to, perhaps when we're discussing with people who perhaps aren't Christians, to help them understand how strange it is that they wouldn't want to have a relationship with a God who's like that. That there's no appetite. You see, this lack of appetite for the evidence of this kind of wonderful God, this lack of appetite is a sign that actually that there's a kind of sickness so you know what it's like when you get ill. I don't know if you're like me. I've got a healthy appetite. And uh, you know, I might get a bit of a temperature, I feel a bit weird. But I really know something's wrong when I lose my appetite. That is when I know, okay, there's definitely something not right here. Um, and when we realize the fact that as humans, we don't have an appetite for God, the Bible tells us that is a sign. Our lack of appetite for God as a lack of appetite in the natural realm for food for something that's practically essential. You need food to live. And actually, food is a huge source of pleasure. So for, for, for practical reasons and for pleasure reasons, f- having food, having an appetite for food is essential. And if someone does get really, really ill, you, know, you can find yourself almost pleading with them, please just eat something. You've got to eat something. If you, don't, if you continue to not to eat, you're going to be in real trouble. And that lack of appetite in the, in the natural realm is a picture, actually, of, of really what what we're talking about here in the, in, in the, in the uh, spiritual realm, it's actually quite scary. It's quite a scary thing to think that people have no appetite for something that they need, God, like food. It, and in Romans 1 tells us this. It says about the world, it says what, what, what can be known about God is plain to them. What it's saying is, is that it's not actually... It's not hard, ultimately, at one level, to believe in God. When you look around this world, there's evidence of God everywhere. But what it says in the same passages, it says, is that people suppress the truth. By their sin, their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. It's like, imagine, it's like sin suppresses our appetite for God. It suppresses our hunger for God godly food for God himself for that person that we should be as humans designed the most natural thing that we should want is God himself and one very legitimate definition of sin is this kind of universal illness that has plagued everyone that suppresses an appetite for the very thing that we need to survive and the very thing that we're meant to find our pleasure in That is what sin is. So I would be as bold as to say this, is that the fact that we don't have an appetite for for evidence that God exists is actually evidence itself that there's something very wrong in us. 
perhaps here, if you, if, you, if you say you're not a Christian, there's no actual appetite in you. What I want to say is ask yourself why that is. I, I remember, again, this dawning on me, this really dawning on me, this is actually very strange. Why wouldn't I desire this God that these Christians are talking about? When actually the God they're talking about, he's not boring. He's not the one I thought. He, he's amazing. He sounds amazing, this Jesus. Why wouldn't I desire him? And so the final point then is, we have to ask why we don't desire God and evidence to exist, which is ultimately sin suppressing that appetite. And the, the solution the Bible says is ultimately very simple, although it's anything but, but um, easy to do, which is first of all to acknowledge it, and then secondarily to ask him to intervene. So the first step, if you're not a Christian here today, or if you're connecting with people and you're getting to this point where there's a realisation, oh yeah, that why, why don't I desire God? That itself is evidence, perhaps, that I'm not as I should be. The first step is to actually recognise the Bible says we have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge it. So, which sounds, well, it sounds simple, doesn't it? No, no, no. Most people do not want to acknowledge the fact that they're ill. Most people don't want that. I mean, some people, you know, hypochondriacs love it, they're always ill, there's always something wrong. But most of us actually will try and stagger on and pretend we're fine and claw our way into work and, no, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm fine. Most humans actually don't want to admit that they're sick. I mean, we all know of the kind of the caricature of the sort of the proud old man who will not go to the doctor, I'm fine, and then boom, he's dead. You know, and everyone else knows there's something horribly wrong, but he will not do it. And if I'm honest, I think particularly in the UK, where we're very proud as a nation, that even admitting, why, why, why don't I have this desire? Even admitting that there could be something wrong is a huge step. It's what the Bible talks about repeatedly, humbling ourselves and coming before God. I remember 17 years ago, when I was at this point, I'd had this months of, of talking with Christians about these logical evidences for faith. And bit by bit by bit, I found myself going, I, I can't ignore this, I can't ignore this. And I remember came to the point where I was with my mum and dad, the 20th of June, and I remember we knelt down. And my dad, he said, something, he said you've got, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to admit this. You've got to admit that you are a sinful person. And I didn't feel sinful at all. I didn't remotely feel sinful. And honestly, compared with lots of people, I thought I'm a pretty nice guy, actually. Um, and I really struggled with this. And this is honestly, as far as I could go with admitting it, I said, okay, I will admit I'm not perfect. How amazingly humble is that? <laughs> I literally, I, I, that was as far as I could go to say, I, okay, if God, you are perfect, I admit I'm not. And God, in his kindness, that was enough. That so, you know, as I've got older, the older I get, the more I see of my sinfulness. I'm sure you'd experience that as well. If you, if you, uh, the older I get, the more I'm convicted of smaller things that are not small, actually, of pride and envy and jealousy and anger. But actually, at that point, I was so blind. So if you're in that situation, or if you're talking with someone, and they're at this point in the conversation where they're thinking, I, I could maybe admit that it's, it's a slightly strange that I don't desire this, this God that that lack of appetite could be a reason that there's something not quite right. For me, that was massive. That was massive, humbling myself enough to actually say, okay, I admit, I admit. And then secondarily, connected with this, that first one's kind of focusing on yourself. 
acknowledging there might be something wrong. The second thing is then saying, I'm asking him to intervene. I'm asking him to intervene. You see, the thing about Christianity is, when you listen to all these logical things, it makes you kind of feel in control, doesn't it? It makes you feel like, I could tick all those boxes and come to believe in Jesus. And it's kind of true that you are in control, to a degree, it's sort of true. But actually, the strange thing about the Christian faith is it's also a bigger truth to say that only God ultimately is the one who's actually really in control. And you get to this point, as we are, as we're coming to the end of this talk, where actually you come to the point where you almost say, logically I can understand this, how do I therefore actually make that step? If I admit I'm sinful, I admit I'm weak, I admit I don't have an appetite for God, then there comes that point, which is really strange for all of us control freaks, which is basically all of us, where you kind of just say, God, you need to do something now. I can't make it happen. I can't make anything happen. I can kind of partner with God. I can, as best as I can, using my mind, walk this far. But there comes a point where you have to ask him to intervene. Again, the analogy of the doctor is really helpful because there comes a point where if you are humble enough to say, I think I need to go to the doctor, what you're actually doing is you're then putting yourself in their hands. You are, you are in a sense, you're losing control now. You're saying, here I am, Mr. Doctor, Mrs. Doctor. I, this is the symptoms. I am now totally letting go of control. And I'm saying... Only you can do what you do. I'm asking you to actually to, to intervene. And this is why in Mark chapter 2, Jesus uses the analogy of being a doctor. He says, I'm a bit like a doctor. He says, I haven't come for the well, I've come for the sick. The tragedy is, most people in this nation think that they are totally fine. Most people in this world. But the more wealthy you are, the more blind you are to how sick we really are. And there comes that point, though, where we, we, we have to understand that in this place of, you know when you're sick, you're very vulnerable, aren't you? If you've got a good doctor who is gentle and takes your symptoms seriously, oh, that is wonderful. We've got a great doctor. She's brilliant. And I want to say to you, seriously, Jesus is the most amazing doctor, isn't he? He's, he, he hasn't come to judge you. If he wanted to judge you, he would have done it. The fact that you're still breathing is because God wants to actually, he's come for the sick. Jesus said, I, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I came for those who are sinners, who know that they need help. And so often, our neighbours and our friends, even if they get to this point, they think, well, surely that I'm gonna just going to get judged. If I admit I'm like this, even to 1%, surely this, this Jesus and this church and this Christianity thing is just going to whack me over the head. And this is where we need to be those who, with great tenderness... Realize we are ambassadors for this doctor. You know, it's like he, he says, well done for calling me. You know, when I had my really chronic IBS last year, it was very humbling having to ask for Tim and Mark to come and pray for me. And when they came into the room, I was trying to push myself up to try and pretend I was fine. They're like, sit down, lie down. It's actually really loads of pain. And there was a gentleness. And it's like Jesus comes in and he puts his bag on the, on the, on the bed and says, well done. Well done for calling me. Well done. You need me. You need me. And, and any of you who are Christian here, you'll know that it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not like a one-off visit. We never see that doctor again. Fobs me off with someone else. No, he's always there. But this is why I think it's so key we understand that the world around us will almost inevitably have a wrong view of this doctor, Jesus. They will see him as some horrible, hard, judgmental, moral God. 
And as we come to an end, I guess I just want to almost appeal to us, first of all, to receive, if you're a Christian here again, to receive a fresh touch, a healing touch from Jesus yourself. Because out of that place, you then become someone who is just again reminded of, you know what? Wonderfully, the logic does stack up. But actually, the real heart of the issue with humans is not so much the evidence. It's the desire for something to be true or not true. And probably, they will not want it to be true. But wonderfully, that itself can lead us to a place of both helping them mentally to understand why that's potentially a sign that something's not right, but also ultimately, as it were, standing with them as they, hopefully, God willing, cry out to God. Shall we stand to our feet?